Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered. We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment. From systemic trauma to abusive power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy Irby and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing humanity back to medicine. Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. Hello and welcome back to the Pulse Check Podcast. I'm Hehe And I'm Mandy. And today we're diving into a conversation that has come up time and time again as Mandy and I have worked together and we have shared stories about Mandy being a medical professional in the birth space and me being a witness in the birth space. And so funny how so many of our stories kind of overlap and it has led us to this big question of like, how did this happen? How did we get here? How was this particular behavior, language, demeanor, just overall treatment learned and passed down through the years? And we're talking about all sorts of things. So, you know, how did providers learn to use kind of threatening tones? What about systemic racism that is passed down? And we're still seeing it in 2022. What are we doing about these things? How does this impact the care of patients, the safety of patients, the outcomes that we have, the way that units and floors interact with one another. And where did this come from? Is this a cultural problem in medical school? Is this a cultural problem in residency? Is it highly dependent on where you go to school or where you do your residency? Is it more dependent on the individual doctor that you practice under or, you know, kind of mentors you? What impacts these things? So, Mandy, I'm super stoked for this conversation. I think we're going to uncover a lot of things that listeners are like, what? I've never thought about that. And I'm hoping in a future episode, we can actually have someone who has been through medical school to talk about these things and has gone through the process of unlearning these things, recognizing these things, calling these things out, because neither you nor I have ever been through medical school. So we're really talking about it from the perspective of witnesses, onlookers, support people, you know, kind of branches of that system. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. And I was hesitant to start this topic because I'm like, I didn't go to medical school and you know, it's just one of the issues. It's just part of the problem because as you're talking, I'm like, oh my God, nursing school is super problematic, (laughs) super toxic. I just saw one of the big nursing groups someone said, is it just me or is nursing school super toxic everywhere? And everyone's like, it's like that everywhere. And nurses are, you know, it's the beginning of a new time where we can share information so much easier than we've ever been able to before. 
it's that theme of keeping professionals separated from each other and siloed and quiet. And a friend just yesterday told me that she had a conversation with her manager and a coworker. And the manager was very clear to say, this conversation does not leave my office. And I was like, mm, red flag. <laughs> no, it totally can leave your office. It's going to leave your office, not in the way of like spreading rumors and talking about people behind their back, but in the way of let's not have a culture of secrecy and these like harmful practices that have been around for so long. So it's almost so ingrained that it's difficult for us to see, but I think that with the ability to share information and see what's going on in other parts of the country, we're able to kind of counteract some of that. Like, oh my gosh, it was so ingrained. I never noticed. But when other people say it and they put language to it, they're like, oh yeah, it probably is that I was completely abused in residency or, you know, hazing is still a thing that goes on in residency and medical school. And I hear new physicians talking about how it just is that bad. And whenever that's said, I'm like, no, it's made to be that bad. Why is it made to be that bad? Why is it made to be almost impossible? I saw another creator on TikTok. She's a psychiatrist and she's talking about how some people think that certain folks would not make it in medical school to be psychiatrists or whatever kind of medical professionals that they want to be because of the hours and the mistreatment and the call time and all of these like made up unhealthy parts of medical school and residency that actually doesn't have to be like that. That make it so difficult and make it so elitist and hazing. Like there's a there's a type of hazing that goes on. I know about it because residents told me about it. Mm. They told me that it's like that. It's supposed to be really hard. It's supposed to try to break you so that it weeds out the folks that just can't handle being a doctor. Yeah. Have you heard that before? Absolutely. I have several friends who've been through medical school and it's just so weird. I mean, we have several nurses in our lives as well. And it just, just so weird. I'm just thinking about my own team and managing my own team. And I do actually the opposite. So <laughs> I, I try and treat them like so well that their love for their job, their treatment, that glowing, like I'm being treated well. I'm on a team that I love. I'm on a team that I feel supported. I'm on a team that loves me back, shines through in their care. And it does. And these people are super educated and they're very engaged in their job and they're so loyal. And it just makes me wonder, like, how much better could patient care be if doctors loved their job and didn't feel like things were being beaten out of them? Before we got here, you had said something that made me think about just as bad as the idea of, well, we've just always done it this way, is in patient care. It stands true in medical school too. Like, well, we've just always made residents like work 275 hours in a week. Is no one questioning? Okay, but okay, A, we just made it up so we can just like unmake it up. We can change that anytime. B, why did we do that? Why are we abusing these people who we're hoping in a few years will go out and be taking care of other humans to keep them well? What's, what's going on here? Well, one of the reasons is it's underpaid service, mm. which, you know, is which is abusive. It's abusive. And, you know, they're learning, but they're also doing the work and 
it requires less attendings who get paid more requires less attendings to oversee the work that maybe like four residents are doing or three residents are doing right because there's like different levels of residency so like different years first year second year third year fourth year and they're doing the work they're seeing the patients they're at the bedside they're writing the orders they're doing the follow-ups they're doing the phone calls they're answering Mm -hmm. questions from the office things like that when the office is closed they're kind of like the on-call and then they're managing whatever's going on on the unit so they're very underpaid and I just assume they're like making a ton of money you know I got out of nursing school and I was like oh I feel like the pressure of paying off your loans and getting working and finding a place to live and all the things within my underpaid nursing salary and identifying that it like takes so much out of me physically mentally emotionally spiritually to do the work and then I feel like I'm not making the money that is giving me the life that I need to recover from my shifts and do my work like therapy and housing and food they were in the very same situation and I was like "Mm, you're a doctor like you tell me all the time this is what I said to residents when I was a baby nurse (laughs) I'm like "Mm, cute because like all you've said is that you're a real doctor. When I was like, are you still in school? They're like, no, I'm learning, but I'm a doctor. I'm like, "Mm, okay, we're all learning. They were like, well, no, like I've graduated medical school and now I'm in residency. And I'm like, yes. They're like, so I said, so you're working and getting paid. They're like, yes, but barely. So they still get stipends for food, like they're in school, but they get a paycheck, but it's not a lot. So I never found out what that was in my area, but they were like stressing about plane tickets to go see their family whenever they wanted. Yeah. So it was underpaid, underpaid for the hours and the work that they were doing. Overworked, right? They're like overworked. the hours yeah. are ridiculous. Like they're, they're not even sustainable hours. And yeah. that's the thing is it's not like they're just working long days. Like people work 12 hour shifts all the time. Nurses, full-blown nurses work 12 hour shifts all the time. That's not what this is. No. These people are staying at the hospital for like two and three days at a time. It's very, right. in my opinion, just unsafe. I know there are caps on hours that they can work or like quote unquote work. So I have been part of several conversations where residents have shared that they have been pressured and or bullied and or forced literally watch someone erase the number that they wrote and rewrite it back on a number that met the standards of them being overworked. Do you know if there's any sort of legislation around laws pertaining to how little they can make? Is there any sort of floor to that where the government says like, you have to provide medical residents with at least this much of a stipend? I don't know. I don't know. What if hospitals can get away with like paying them like literally? I don't know. We need to talk to a resident. I mean, we have some ideas that's happening. If you know someone, send them our way who wants to talk about this. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm like thinking back to these conversations with residents and they would be like, oh no, I have to leave in the middle of surgery because I'm going to hit my over hours. And then they have to come back 24 hours later. And I'm like, you regularly work up to the limit. And then I hear them talking about like healthy balancing. So they would like, try to have these hobbies and like they would be forced upon them through their school, right? Through their program. They would like 
hobbies, right? So their program would be like, oh, we're having these nights out or we're having a run club or a bike club or whatever the hobbies are within that kind of like cohort, they would be almost forced to participate or highly encouraged to participate, which tells me that there's a top-down model of someone telling them highly encouraged means like, if you want to do well in this program, if you want to be seen as professional, if you want to be agreeable, you're going to participate in everything that we're setting up for you. But on the back end, it was like, it's for your own good. It's so that you can have this life balance. And these residents are like, all I want to do is sleep and go see my family and spend a week with my family when it's the holidays because they're burned out. I mean, they're made to work harmful hours. Just how abusive to feel like you have the right to tell someone how to spend their free time. Like this is not time I'm on the clock. This ain't time I'm getting paid. And you're trying to tell me what to do in my free time, in my downtime, in the only time that I get to replenish myself Mm -hmm. and you're trying to dictate how I do that. Like everybody wake the fuck up. What are we doing? Who doesn't see this? It's so scary to see how normalized this is, right? And how fearful people are to kind of buck the system, right? Like you talk about this pressure to join these groups. Like it must be social pressure. It must be like yeah. you, you might be like ridiculed or like you don't make as many friends. You're antisocial. You're not trying, yeah. like don't come complaining to us about how you're having a hard time transitioning from work to your regular life. Cause we're like operating these like work life balance. I don't know how big of a deal it was, but I remember them talking about it. And I remember them talking about it like a very hushed hush. Like mm-hmm. it's fine. I love it here. It's fine. I love it. It's fine so grateful. And I'm like, ew, that's disgusting. I'm like, mm, toxic. Like that's red. Yeah. And yeah. then they would have to like volunteer. I had someone asking me constantly. They were like, oh my gosh, you know so much about the community. Can you please help me find some volunteer hours? And I was like, no, bitch. No. Why are you doing that? You don't have hours and neither do I. I have two kids. Like stop. I'm recovering. Let's just talk about what it's like. I need a recovery day every time I work. And that's not me being lazy. That's me having to really try to reset my nervous system. Cause I'm fucking out here being told that I need to protect my patients from you. That doesn't make any sense. And then they're being told they need to protect their patients from nurses who are trying to make labor take longer, or we just don't have time for this. We don't have enough beds for this. We don't have enough patients for this. Like we can't wait bad things could happen. We need to save everyone from all the bad things. That's stress on both of us. Why are you being told you have to go like work in a clinic or teach some sort of education to the community when like, that seems like we're prioritizing the wrong type of off, off the clock practices. And now we're saying, you know, we're saying this stuff out loud and I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how they treat nurses in a very top-down model and a very paternalistic, like I had conversations with the head of the residency program about how their residents were told to quickly go around and do certain things. So they would like leave this room where they would all powwow about what needs to happen they would peek their head into a patient's room to find me where I am like bedside charming, doing all the nursing stuff. And they would peek their head in and be like, Hey, get ready. We're coming back in 10 minutes to check her. And they would like talk about the patient without like saying anything to the patient. They would be telling me something. And then they would slam the door, which slamming the door was always like such a pet peeve of mine. 
I would like die on the hill of don't fucking slam the door because it's labor. And also it's the hospital. And it's not your door to slam. Please have some idea about the type of place that you're working at. Like even an office door, I can't imagine any space where slamming a door, like letting a heavy door close on its own is respectful. Like just some basic respect. That's it. Just not basic. respectful. <laughs> yeah. Like your mom, your dad, your parent, your adult in your life needs to tell you how not to slam the door. These are adults. So that was a hard thing for me to be like, if you're an adult and you want to be respected in the workplace, respect the workplace, respect the patient, respect me. Don't go in and give me orders over the patient in the patient's room in front of everyone. That is not your role. The fact that it's even called an order is Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is harmful. You're not ordering me around. We could have a conversation. We're not going to do it here unless it's with the patient. So like start including the patient. I would have to have these conversations almost every year. What we're not going to do is peek the door, open the door, talk to me, slam the door and act like that's you're done. And I would bring that up and they would be like, oh, I know, I know. I know that's really gross of me, but like, that's what they're telling me to do. And I only have a few minutes before change of shift. And I needed to tell you. And like, honestly, there was not a good communication system with nurses. We didn't have our own phone. There wasn't a way for them to send me a message without doing that. If I'm in the patient's room, they would have to actually walk in, include the patient or ask me to step out. Like it it would be a whole thing, but it was very telling of this is okay for you because this is what's happening to you. So residents were receiving direction and dictation mm-hmm. from their attendings, from their upper level. And it was all like, well, the upper level said, I said, the upper level is also not in charge of me. Upper level is not also in charge of the patient. Like that we have a fundamental misunderstanding of power dynamics mm-hmm. and communication and respect going on here. They had a problem with me being disrespectful and like asking them to have a conversation every single time this happened. And I'm like, I think you know, if the patient were to speak up about this, that's harmful. And also Jen's like, what kind of relationship do I have with that physician? What kind of relationship do the physicians have with each other? And it's very telling that someone is about to come in and tell that patient exactly the same thing. Like, Hey, you're going to do this and conversations over. And that's harmful. That's scary. It's not centering the patient. It's centering whatever their priorities are in the top-down physician model of medicine. I'm so eager to get a doctor on here who has been through medical school. Like, I'm dying to know, is this instilled in you from day one? Does it start in medical school or... Are the textbooks telling you one thing and then there's a disconnect and you get into residency and all of the things that you've learned in the books about informed consent, including the patient, patient-centered care and collaborative care team, is that all beaten out of you in real life residency? And when you're actually practicing as a doctor, is it a disconnect or is it like a fundamental rooted issue that we have? I have the same questions about racism, right? We talked about this before we started recording, but TikTok Dr. Joe Breville is doing a phenomenal job of educating everybody. What different symptoms and syndromes and conditions look like on bodies of color? Because typically medical school books only have white bodies. And so for people who don't have white skin or light skin, these things are going to look different. And that is so problematic because, I mean, honestly, it's 
responsible for so many bad things right. like the black people just get black and brown, brown people get misdiagnosed all the time get told this is nothing all the time because not because these doctors necessarily have ill intent although some definitely do not, not because they necessarily have bad intent because they don't know what they're looking for they haven't been taught what these things look for and they're seeing it on a black and brown body. They've only seen it on a white. It looks different in their brain. It's not that. And so that makes me think that's definitely starting in medical school. What are we doing about that? Are medical schools starting to update their books? Are they starting to include classes about maybe DEI in medical school, like inpatient care? Like how do you start identifying and caring for people who look different than what you've seen in books and look different than you, um, which leads us to another problem. So problematic how many white providers there are compared to providers of color, right? Also impacts outcomes, also impacts unit culture, also right. impacts residency culture, impacts right. everything. Right. For sure. Well, what you're saying is happening in medical school I mean, symptoms of white supremacy, pillars of white supremacy mm -hmm. are taught inside of the schools. I know nursing school and undergrad and general classes. So the like saviorism mm -hmm. in nursing school mm -hmm. is like the, just the language around patients and how we have to like protect them from themselves and come up with their answers and have a solution for everything. We're the only ones who could be their advocates and they're not their own advocates. You know, we say the words of like, we work with the family, but then we also hear really complicated dealing with the family or like difficult family, or often those are scared families of color with a history of being mistreated, distrusted, lied to, you know, harmed in the medical system. And we're not, we're not taught that they're not like, oh, they've had like generational trauma around the mistreatment in the medical system of them experiments done, no informed consent, no discussion. They're treated like they're not human. That's not discussed. It's always like how to deal with difficult patients, difficult. And we're like labeling people really continuing and furthering the racism, discrimination, harmful practices is what is mm -hmm. what that's doing so it's happening in medical school but is the the culture on the unit isn't happening it's just being born it's just developing mm -hmm. into oh this is all just how it is in real life i guess this is how it plays out we have to be on alert for people who are trying to harm their own bodies <laughs> it's never centering the patient it's always like oh they might make a bad choice and then we would be traumatized if we had to see a bad outcome and it'd be their fault. So we have to protect them from that. That's just the first thought that comes to my mind. Oh no, heaven forbid <laughs> you have some trauma from something. Never mind all the millions of people you've traumatized from not centering them and not allowing them to be in the driver's seat of their own care and active participant in their own care. There's very I much a distrust. Exactly. Patients. Ideally, medicine doesn't come with trauma like that, right? And kind of walks away, away feeling either supported by their medical team or their medical team feeling like, wow, we supported that patient to the best of our ability and, you know, got a good outcome or we supported our patient to the best of our ability and we still got a bad outcome. And that's super unfortunate, but we did the best that we could. That is 
all about trauma. Everyone's like, no, no, I'm making this decision because I don't want the trauma. I want you to have the trauma. Well, I don't know if they know if like <laughs> we know. No, that. I don't think it's conscious. I don't know. It is, you know, like a conscious decision, but just, I mean, semi-defensive medicine, right? Well, I don't want a bad outcome that already is super rare. So I'm, I'm still going to encourage this and not let you know about your other options so that I can decrease my risk of ending up in you know, court. I just came across, so I have an app, it's called the Birth Lounge app, and I put weekly updates of birth education in there. I was talking about providers using defensive medicine, and those providers actually end up in court and have legal action taken against them more often than providers who don't practice defensive medicine, because when you practice defensive medicine, you typically either miss things, you misdiagnose, or you make decisions that had better alternatives because you're practicing defensive medicine instead of practicing individualized care, which was super interesting, but makes a ton of sense. How'd you know that? Where'd you hear that? So all the stuff that's in the birth lounge app is all evidence-based. So there's a research article that shared about it. I can Mm -hmm. share it in the notes and I'll share it with you, Mandy. Yeah, that's nutty, nutty, nutty. The article that I found that we've attached to this podcast is the prevalence of discrimination, abuse, and harassment in emergency medicine residency training in the U.S. And it's from 2021. Of 7,600 emergency medicine residents, 45% reported exposure to some type of workplace mistreatment. So that's really getting to like hurt people or hurting people. And so I feel really bad for medical professionals. That's why we're here doing this, talking about this, because I think, like you said, people just don't know that it happens. And also um, a lot of physicians and healthcare professionals aren't allowed to talk about it. And they've been for so long told that it's fine. It's fine. It's normal. It's normal. It's how it is. It's how it has to be. And everything in them is like, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't good for me. This isn't how I'm learning. This is scary. I hate it here. And then they go care for their patients and clients and families. Like, how do you have any extra for that? How do you have any compassion and empathy left when you're being screamed at and discriminated against and called out in front of your peers and mocked and told that you're never going to make it. Wow. Yeah. Racism, sexism, misogyny, ableism, so many things. Yeah. So many things. Our healthcare system is so dysfunctional. Like it is just so broken from the inside out. But I'm excited to talk to folks who are changing it, who see it, who identify it. And who've had to relearn, unlearn, relearn, reshape their practice. We're seeing that all the time. I'm seeing it. Ooh, I have some ideas about some other professionals who are kind of doing their own thing and have like moved away from that scene and come back and have decided to do things differently. So that's exciting and hopeful. And I think medicine is shifting the way we receive medical care is shifting and it allows for a lot more space for professionals to really be the care providers, the compassionate, empathetic humans that want to help other humans. That is just really, really impossible in the current modern medicine system. Yeah. You just have to like survive through that part and then go get a ton of therapy, you know, continue your anti-racism journey, continue calling out white supremacy culture and identifying it in your life and your family, and then doing it a different way. And I absolutely relate to that. And I know you do too, as a 
business owner and advocate for perinatal reproductive health care, we have to do it a different way. We have to be following the black, brown, indigenous leaders who are doing it a different way and have been doing it a different way Mm -hmm. and recognize that we have been taught harmful practices that are perpetuating the harm, whether we want to like it or not, whether we identify as that type of person or not, which we don't. (laughs) If we're in medicine, we don't identify as someone who wants to do harm or like, why'd you do this? I don't know. It's like a cool ass way to help people. And you get to do science at the same time. We're not trying to hurt people, but we are without identifying those problems. Oh yeah. 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 If you are someone who has started to kind of like see the patterns of what yeah. we're doing and you want to talk about it, come on our podcast, come on our podcast. What he, he said, if you are identifying this in your practice and in yourself, come on our podcast, let's talk about it. I want to share about how you're doing it. What was your revelation? A lot of these, a lot of these young folks, a lot of these newer folks into the scene know it ahead of time. It's just like nursing the system. She was like, oh yeah, eyes wide open, baby. I went into nursing school and I knew it was going to be hard. I had therapy on speed dial. I want to talk to however it came for you. That was not my story. So I can relate if you are in it and you're like, this is just wrong. This is, this is what I've learned is wrong. Stranger danger. This is not right. I want to, I want to hear from you. Find us on our Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast and we'll have you on the episode, either anonymous or not, depending on where you're at and the safety level that you feel. Thank you for joining us today. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify. And if you're loving what you're hearing or it's helping you open your eyes into your own practice and professional or patient situation, patient care, patient care. Yeah. Maybe you're supporting family going through the medical process. Leave us a review. We'd love your five-star review. Thank you so much. It helps others hear what we're talking about and more folks can come on with us and have conversation. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye y'all. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to leave you with a quick stat and something to think about until we see you next time. According to a 2018 report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the prevalence of sexual harassment in academic medicine is almost double that of other science and engineering specialties. This presents a serious danger that ripples into patient safety, clinical outcomes, and burnout, which leads to costly loss of talent. How much safer could medicine be if nurses and physicians weren't also battling sexual harassment day in and day out? If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact us on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. We'd love to share your story.